We're made of openings. The world comes in, mixes with us. We are the void, and the world embraces the void. this void quite calming actually it's like this time the xanax took me your sense of self is crumbling and it's taking the void down with it it's like i'm in a black void trying to reach the news story this concept of morality is a very interesting human characteristic what is real how do you define real if you're talking about what you can feel what you can smell you can taste and see. Warning, this podcast contains foul language, dark invocations, and treating women like they're people. Welcome, friends, to episode 111 of Embrace the Void, where the grating has begun and the suffering never stopped. I'm your host, Aaron, and my guest this week joins me to progress the show's discussion of several philosophers, primarily Plato, uh, Aristotle, and Nagel, all fan favorites. Um, I feel really lucky to get to have these kinds of conversations um, and to have this platform to put thoughtful folks in touch with interested listeners. So let's uh, make some connections. My guest this week is Fabienne Dien-Kay, a PhD student in philosophy at Ottawa University and a self-described anti-Platonist Platonist. Um, he also writes uh, some excellent academic blog posts alongside former guests like uh, Necessary Being and Stingray at buriedincontemplation.com. Fabian, would you like to say hi to the void? Uh, hello, everyone. I don't know how to speak to a void, but uh, I imagine you're all there. Yeah, everyone sort of is a little confused about it at first, but they slip in pretty quickly. It's not a big deal. So thanks for coming on the show. I really like your um, your comments on Twitter and some of your um, writings. I realized actually um, somebody had sent me some of your things a while back and the name clicked when I was working through materials. So we'll talk about that some. Do you want to start, though, by giving folks sort of a sense of your philosophical biases and allegiances? Uh, oh, there are so many to name. Uh, <laughs> uh, in general, I am fairly scientistic in my approach. My concern is primarily in, in philosophical methodology, and I'm a fairly strict opponent of like the kind of old-fashioned intuitionism that happened in, in analytic philosophy in the 20th century. Uh, but on the other hand, I'm also not really a, a big fan of like phenomenology or, or deconstruction or hermeneutics or anything of that uh, sort in continental philosophy either. Uh, in general, my allegiance is going to be broadly to Plato. Like the phrase Platonist, anti-Platonist is just kind of a, a kind of a sick joke on my okay. part. Uh, <laughs> but yeah, it's a, like, I really like Plato and just disagree with his conclusions for the most part. I like everything about him except his conclusions. Um, yeah. <laughs> that's good. I think we can, we'll dive into that uh, a little bit. And I, I'm glad to know that you are of the scientific persuasion. Um, I think um, I personally am in the other camp, and it's good. We've had a couple of scientific folks on to, I think, hopefully build some bridges between our communities. 
Um, so what is your what is your focus? Would you say in philosophy? Um, what do you what do you what what issues are you particularly interested in grappling with at the moment? Uh, definitely questions of of uh, method. So uh, in terms of like meta philosophy, yeah, broadly speaking, I suppose. Uh, mm-hmm. So questions of the nature of norms of philosophy. So what philosophy is, what it uh, should be doing, whether we should be doing it. Uh, the kinds of limitations it has, uh, and even more generally than that, just the kinds of questions we ought to answer uh, before even talking about how to answer them. So would it be cruel of me then to ask you what philosophy is and what it should be? A little bit, because uh, yeah. <laughs> that's a, a massive question, uh, and uh, I've yeah. not fully worked those things out yet. But That's okay. Uh, I totally understand. <laughs> so, I mean... Okay, so you're interested in sort of the meta-analysis of philosophy. Are there major sort of missteps that, that you feel like you identify? Um, so you've mentioned um, intuitionism, um, yeah. but what are other things where you feel like, uh, you know, you might not have the perfect solution, but you're pretty sure it's not that methodology? Well, let's go back to Aristotle. <laughs> uh, so I, I think if anyone knows me on Twitter, one of the things that I, I am, I'm not well known for anything, but if I'm well known for something, it's for not liking Aristotle. Uh, mm-hmm. And in general, I think Aristotle's move towards uh, a kind of imminent approach, so talking about sensible substances and all these sorts of things, uh, is a significant step backwards. Uh, but even beyond that, the, the philosophical project that Aristotle has motivated is in a lot of ways really distinct from, uh, uh, from what Plato was doing and what people before Plato were doing. Uh, and uh, the general uh, approach that he has is typically something like uh, identifying knowledge for its own sake and nothing beyond that. Uh, hmm. So in, in the metaphysics, for example, he talks quite a lot about the study of being as being and why it should be uh, strictly, uh, or why metaphysics or philosophy, or well, he doesn't use the word metaphysics, obviously, but why philosophy uh should take that as its object because, and strictly because, it's useless. Uh, he thinks because it's useless, it's valuable for its own purposes, and that's why it's valuable. Uh-huh, it's a kind of intrinsic value. Um, yeah. Yeah, I understand. Sort of like the will for Kant. Um, yeah. So that's interesting, because I'm, I'm curious about the distinctions between Socrates, Plato, and Aristotle. I'm, I, I guess I feel like I love all of them and have issues with all of them in various ways. Um, and it's interesting to me for, to note you saying that, like, you feel like Aristotle is the step in the wrong direction when I feel like oftentimes he's associated with being the more scientismic, sort of concrete on the ground thinker as compared to, um, you know, Plato and Socrates worrying about the platonic forms and things like that. Do you feel like that's a mischaracterization of their relationship or that there's just different levels of disagreement? Uh, there's definitely different levels of dif- disagreements. I suspect that uh, there are certain things that like, we take from Aristotle that are really valuable. Like Aristotle was bar none one of the most brilliant philosophers to ever live. Uh, mm-hmm. I just think he was wrong, and like, just that his approach was wrong. Yeah. Um, uh, it's just the, like, the questions I'm concerned about are not so much questions of like, the objects of philosophy. Mm-hmm. Uh, like, those are obviously important. But the the role that philosophy serves as kind of a social phenomenon, uh, mm-hmm. in a sense. So, like Plato, very clear, well, very clearly is overstating it. Mm-hmm. There's a, a reading of Plato that 
I typically endorse that says something like Plato relates philosophy back to social structures and, and uh, political structures and uh, even the structure of just the individual Athenian or the individual Greek uh, more generally uh, that Aristotle has just rejected. Uh, mm-hmm. So Plato has philosophy as a social phenomenon. So in the Republic, uh, the philosopher, once he leaves the cave and sees the forms and so on and so forth, has to descend back into the cave uh, mm-hmm. to essentially rescue his his comrades. Aristotle, once he exits the cave, uh, just says, fine, you know, the philosopher mm-hmm. has achieved his goal. Uh, and uh-huh. that's, that's the end of it. Sort of like the difference between Arhats and Bodhisattvas, some people, the people who leave and the people who come back. Um, yeah. That, that's interesting. So that's what you, that's one of the things that you like about Plato's way of approaching things. What are, what are the, con- what are the conclusions of his that you take particular issue with? Uh, well, I, I'm not a, a, like Orthodox Platonism in the sense that like there's mm-hmm. objective abstract things out there that nobody really understands. Uh, mm-hmm. I don't think those exist. Uh, although I've become slightly more sympathetic than I have in the past several weeks, but only because I'm studying Frege. Uh-huh. But so that kind of view, uh, his physics is very clearly wrong, but complicated. Uh, his uh, approach to ethical theory is not, uh, I think there's a significant amount of, of mistakes that he makes uh, in ethics that I think Aristotle some, to some extent does a little better. Mm-hmm. Uh, but for the most part, uh, his approach, I think, is very good. It's just a matter of where he's going with it. Mm-hmm. Do you, do you agree with the uh, Republic that we should have we should be the philosopher kings and whatnot? Uh, I don't think Plato agrees with that, but <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah. C- certainly in terms of the the ordinary reading of the Republic, I would disagree with that. Yeah. Uh, okay. <laughs> Fair enough. So you mentioned ethics, which is my particular forte, um, and I I have a love and admiration for virtue theory, even though I'm also a pluralist and I think. You know, the, the theories run together in lots of different ways, and I'm always talking myself in circles around these different ethical theories. Um, what do you feel like are the major differences for them besides the sort of in the living in the world kindofness of uh, one view versus the other? The differences between their virtue theories, is that the main one or is there uh, something uh, else where you feel like Aristotle pulls ahead a little bit? So Aristotle pulls ahead in a lot of different ways, um, but... If we want to just restrict to, to ethics, like you could write whole books about this that people have for thousands of years. Mm-hmm. But like the general... But notes to Plato, uh, right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, but there, there's a lot of agreement uh, between Aristotle and Plato. And, there, and really, realistically, it should be like Aristotle was purportedly a student of Plato's and so on and so forth. Mm-hmm. Uh, and there's a lot of agreement also with the people that came before Plato, including the sophists, including the... Uh, uh, the earlier scientists like Thales and, and so on, uh, and including just the ordinary uh, Greek person. I think where their differences lie is that Plato was uh, extremely revisionist and to some extent revolutionary in how he tries to frame uh, ethical discourse. And that's mm-hmm. the fundamental object uh, of study for Plato. This is the thing that, that philosophy ought to do, is figure out what, uh, how people ought to act and the kinds of people that... Uh, philosophers and everyone else just should be that question of who we should be is much more primary than what we should do uh, uh, for Plato and for Aristotle and for most of the Greeks. Uh, it's what Plato does with that. That's really uh, uh, unique. And Aristotle is revolutionary in his own way, which I'll say in a second, but uh, 
Plato's approach is to essentially keep the same structure for the most part of, of ethical evaluation. So talking about people and various characteristics of those people and, and uh, so on. But the, uh, uh, the means by which we evaluate people is going to be completely different. So talking about ignorance and, and uh, um, uh, techne and, and these really fundamental like concepts about the kinds of knowledges that we have. What I think Plato gets wrong in that is that he leans a little bit too far into it, and he kind of comes out looking a little like Kant, where you have mm-hmm. this this construction of what uh, is reasonable for a person to do, uh, given the kind of person he is uh, or she. Uh, and this is one thing that, that Plato gets uh, really right, is, uh, to, is a bit of a tangent, but that he's very good on uh, on gender politics especially and so like in the republic uh he makes uh uh makes the argument i think it's in book five i don't remember exactly that uh women should be equal to men in the uh, in uh, calipolis uh and serve as philosopher kings just like men and so on and so forth uh and he also has diotima in in the symposium give uh, have a significant like starring role uh he has aspasia in the menexinus and so on mm-hmm. uh but in any case, when he's being revolutionary about this kind of thing, it's to some extent to separate from the ordinary Greek uh, perspective on these kinds of matters, uh, which is what he's trying to reject. Which would be what? Like that uh, uh, t- top-down teleological theory of functions? Is that related uh, to what's going on? So the, the ordinary Greeks before Plato wouldn't have had that. Okay. <laughs> Some of the early scientists would have, but you have this kind of conception of this kind of social order where everyone is uh, fitting in their role, but it's not like there's no theory behind that for, for most of the Greeks. Mm-hmm. It's just that uh, there are social roles for women, there are social roles, roles for men, there are social roles for aristocrats, social roles for slaves, and uh, the good person fits that social role, whatever it happens to be. Mm-hmm. Uh, as Greek uh, or as the uh, Greece trans- uh, transition into democracy, um, you have the a kind of collapse of some of these social roles. So there was a uh, a revolution towards uniting the middling and elites, uh, or the middling and the aristocrats, uh, to a kind of citizen, in a sense. Like the, the conception mm-hmm. of a politai uh, became really important, uh, and it collapsed the social roles between aristocrats and ordinary citizens. Um, and that created this kind of space for people to experiment to some degree with the kind of person they're going to be. Um, but mm-hmm. the Greek imagination had no idea how to deal with that. And that allowed a lot of uh, corruption and a lot of uh, um, uh, stasis, I suppose, uh, where you have like significant political conflict, mostly because people just don't know how to actually fill any role and they don't have a theory behind it. So they don't know how to figure it out. Plato's Uh giving a theory and then just kind of letting it go. Uh, And his theory is going to be really rationalistic and uh, to some extent makes no uh, um, excuses about the kind of uh, person you should be. It's just, everyone should be the same more or less. Like you have, the three mm-hmm. kinds of people in, in the in Calipolis, but the argument mostly in the Republic is about the the virtuous soul or the just soul, uh, which as Democrats we all should strive to be. So every person has uh, a rational part, 
and a spirited part and a, and a, uh, and a repetitive part uh, that should be properly ordered in themselves. Uh, so there's a single social role, and that single social role is citizen or whatever mm-hmm. it happens to be, and it gives you responsibilities uh, just based on that. Yeah, that kind of unity of Telos seems like, um, a, a, and, and, and with it a sort of unity of the virtues kind of argument, um, does seem sort of flattening. And I get that same feeling in Aristotle sometimes as well, where he sort of ends up with, you know, everyone should just practice the life of the mind. Um, do you feel like in the modern age, right, if we're trying to update virtue theory to make it functional in a post existentialist kind of world that we can sort of pluralize our sense of purpose and maintain this idea of that, you know, a good, a good person is one who flourishes in whatever way is flourishing for that person? Absolutely. Uh, so one of the other just kind of side projects I have, uh, is in philosophy biology. I'm really concerned with (laughs) what function means, uh, or what teleology means. Um, and in general, pretty much every account I've ever seen is just really bad. Uh, it (laughs) like has very obvious problems that have been around for hundreds of years, uh, that, and, uh, to some extent makes teleology either, uh, scientifically or explanatory, uh, explanatorily or metaphysically irrelevant, mm-hmm. or it just doesn't do anything for what we like teleology for. So ethics or, uh, aesthetics or something like that. Mm-hmm. Um, so you just kind of have these two pieces that don't ever come together. And so if one theory is good for one, it doesn't, it's really bad at the other and so on and so forth. Um, and I think one of the major problems with this is just how uh, we get a lot of these uh, these theories, and it usually comes from Aristotle. Like Plato has some comments here and there on on purpose, but is mm-hmm. really restricted, and it's like there's no theory in the back uh, for Plato uh, on teleology. But Aristotle has a very detailed uh, and well thought out uh, theory of teleology, uh, and it's completely mistaken. Uh, and I think everyone recognizes that for the most part today, uh, because atomism and, and evolutionary theory and so on and so forth. Mm-hmm. But a lot of people have tried to rescue it by changing a uh, part here or there. But I think more, there's uh, an increasing recognition today that, that just, just the core of Aristotle's uh, uh, teleology is, is mistaken. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think one way to reframe that is to stop thinking of the telos as uh, a singular end that's explanatory, because that's what Aristotle needs. Uh, and instead, start talking about the antecedent conditions that kind of propel something or push it. Uh, mm-hmm. So instead of giving talking about teleology, you're essentially talking about archaeology, except for the fact that archaeology is already a thing and it means something different. <laughs> uh, so uh-huh. we, we'll use a different word for that, but... Um, one I'm way sure they would conceive, appreciate it, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> uh, one way to conceive of these antecedent uh, conditions is to call them something like problems. Everyone knows what a problem is for the most part, and we know that solutions to problems are the things that we're striving to get, but they don't exist yet until we actually realize them in some way. And because they don't exist, they obviously can't be explanatory. But in addition to that, solutions to problems are almost always uh, plural. Uh, there's always, almost always many different solutions to singular problems, mm-hmm. uh, which when we import into ethics is really helpful. Uh, not only does it give you a, a means to um, uh, 
evaluate an object in some way uh, or a person or an action or whatever uh, the object evaluation you want to focus on. Uh, it also gives you a means to evaluate them not just as solutions to or not just as realizers of singular solutions, but as uh, things that take one solution over another or mm -hmm. as concerning one problem or another, because problems, of course, also mix together uh, in different ways. And like intersectionality theory, for example, fits right into this, this model. Mm -hmm. really well. uh, mm -hmm. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. And like, I haven't worked this out yet. I don't know how well it's going to work, but mm -hmm. in terms of like the, the broad sketch I have so far, it seems like it's going to work in a lot of different ways that and be quite important in not only uh, philosophy of biology, but also for ethics. Yeah, and I mean, it feels like it dovetails nicely with some of the projects that the existentialists get up to, where they sort of try to analyze the problem of the human condition and then try to figure out, you know, what are ways to find meaning again uh, once we've analyzed that that particular problem. Um, yeah, so, yeah. and and like, you know, the virtues. The, to me, what seems great about the idea of the virtues is that there there do seem to be instrumentally convergent like features things that are good for anyone pretty much no matter their particular ends and that we can we can develop an under better understanding of how to cultivate those in individuals um without having to presume that they're going to use them towards a, a predetermined end of some sort yeah absolutely and on the the so there's a comment you made kind of halfway through uh, mm -hmm. about the, the kind of problems that most or the, the way the existentialist frame that I forget the mm -hmm. exact right to use, but, and that's one thing that I really like Nagel for is because Nagel has this absurdism uh, paper early in his career where he frames mm -hmm. absurdism as this kind of conspicuous discrepancy between the objective view and the subjective view. And that conspicuous discrepancy is essentially exactly what a problem is that you have mm -hmm. this, discrepancy between the system itself and some external condition that you somehow have to solve for Nagel of course you, there's just no way to solve this particular discrepancy but the, the framing that he uses uh, is the thing that inspired me to frame teleology and as problems in the first place and I think that it can be used to solve uh, Nagel's discrepancy oh interesting Although, who knows yeah yeah no I mean <laughs> I think that discrepancy um you know the the view from nowhere versus the view from somewhere and like subjective value versus objective reality like these discrepancies that i think you know and now that you've talked about nagel i can finally talk about him some too um <laughs> otherwise i get in trouble if i'm the first one to bring him up every single time but yeah i think he in, in my mind one of the things that he's particularly good at and we can we can talk about your perspective on him is that he he does highlight these tensions between and he doesn't he doesn't do it in a way where it's like we can easily let ourselves off the hook. He like really is honest about how there is this kind of tension between, you know, wanting to have meaning and living in a meaningless void. Um yeah. so so yeah, so let's let's talk a little bit about some of um Nagel's problems that he brings into the world, one of which does relate to our virtue theory discussion, which is the the problem of moral luck. Um I'm curious how you first of all view the relationship between luck and morality? Do you feel like morality is at the whims of luck in some problematic way? Uh, not just in some problematic way, but in just like <laughs> the whole problematic way. <laughs> All the problematic uh, ways? Yeah. So there's a lot of avenues I can go here. Uh, if we're 
jumping off from Nagel, I've never actually read Nagel's moral luck paper, so okay. I can't really do that. But uh, one thing that, that I've focused on a lot in uh, my own previous work is um, approaches from moral luck to something like Plato. Because uh, mm-hmm. as I said earlier, that Plato has this like super rationalistic uh, approach to, to ethics. And often he's just mistaken for Kant. And, and there's good reasons for that. Like mm-hmm. uh, there is this kind of rationalistic construction about the kinds of things you should do. But there is a significant difference between Kant and, uh, and Plato as well. And uh, one of the major differences is that Plato doesn't have firm conclusions. Uh, and this is why he uses the dialogue mm-hmm. form and all these sorts of things. He has a the coward's way out. <laughs> well, yeah, it is a bit. So. Plato does have the lackeys uh, defending uh, uh, his perspective on courage and uh, uh, to some extent and making room for the kind of things that he uh, he himself is doing. But Mm -hmm. beyond that, uh, in terms of just like uh, luck and faith and all these kinds of questions, he has uh, like really important dialogues that people often forget about. So like the Menexenus, for example, uh, Mm -hmm. where which is essentially Socrates relaying a speech from Aspasia uh, about uh, the fate of the war dead uh, following the Corinthian War, which was after Socrates died, of course. Mm-hmm. And the war dead themselves talk to the city and, and about all of the conditions that are required for them to be great and how they have sacrificed themselves to be great. But they say at the end, no matter what we do, it doesn't mean that everything is going to turn out right. Uh, mm-hmm. That's very difficult for mortals to do. So when Plato is talking about all of these rationalistic theories, uh, he has this conception in the back of his mind of that's what gods do. We're mm-hmm. not there yet. <laughs> mm-hmm. Or maybe we can't be there. Uh, and like in the, in the law case, for example, he does have this conception of, of the super rationalistic, scientific, uh, technical person, and that's Nicias. And Nicias, mm-hmm. because he was so scientific, got himself killed, mm-hmm. uh, essentially. Uh, He was listening to the astrologers and the astrologers said, uh, don't retreat yet. Wait for the the moon to be at this position or so on and so forth. It took three days for for that to happen. And uh, within those three days, the Athenian uh, uh, Navy had been surrounded and killed by the Spartans uh, and the Syracusans. Like you Uh, Yeah, exactly. Uh, You know, we do that today, of course. It just happens in Iraq. Uh, And it uses drones. But nonetheless, uh, like Plato has very clear criticisms of this super rationalistic person in trying mm-hmm. to admit moral luck into his ethics. Uh, and it creates significant problems for him because he doesn't know how to deal with it. And he's very open about that. Uh-huh. Uh, there's not even a, uh, an attempt uh, to make any solution. Every dialogue that even mentions something to do with moral luck just kind of ends. <laughs> pretty much as soon as it comes up just and ends. scene <laughs> yeah um do you, do you feel like you know if, if he makes a gesture in any direction is it similar to kant's move which is to focus in on the pure goodwill as separate from consequences and things as a way to sort of shield our moral judgments from luck yeah so plato uh could uh move in that direction but he's mm-hmm. closed that one off and he i think purposely closes that one off because mm-hmm. he doesn't want this uh uh feature of your own uh personal self in any way to just have value period uh okay 
so like rationality for him isn't even the highest good the good is the highest good and the good shares uh it's different aspects in different ways and you need all of those aspects uh you need courage you need uh prudence you need uh justice and Mm -hmm. so on and so on and so on it like goodness is a whole person for plato and to say that there's a particular thing or a particular feature uh, of a person that is where value lies is completely mistaken for him. Uh, Um, So you you don't think that you can, do do, do, do not think our ability to become good on his view is, uh, so you think it's susceptible to luck in a sense? Definitely. Um, Plato is very concerned with becoming good. And and like the, the Mano is the conclusion is essentially you can't be good unless you're good already. Uh, and the Theotetus has the exact same conclusion in like a different dialogue about learning and epistemology. You can't know right. things unless you know things. Well, we're all screwed then, aren't we? Um, yeah. And he's trying to solve these, uh, these problems. Uh, the Clytophon, which is the dialogue I work on, like for my regular research, uh, has a criticism of Socrates from Plato, um, well, from Clytophon, but written by Plato, uh, of kind of this approach that says you can't know things unless you know things. Um, and it just says, well, I'm, I, Clytophon, obviously don't know things. How do I learn? Uh, maybe I'm just going to uh, give philosophy away and just go work with the sophists instead. They at least promise to teach me things, which mm-hmm. for Plato, of course, is a bad conclusion. Right. Uh, the sophists are terrible people. <laughs> what, what with their wanting to get paid a living wage for their educating? Yeah. Well, there's that. Uh, <laughs> As we as we know, those uh, those damn liberal professors and uh, right. wanting to get paid, but but beyond that, uh, they also fill their their students with all this left wing junk. Right, exactly. <laughs> Sophistry, right? Uh, making making the weaker argument the stronger one by oppression Olympics or something. Yeah, exactly. Um, yeah, absolutely. So <laughs> so you think this is a big problem, right? You're uh, on board with the problem of the luck. Um, do you are you at all sympathetic to any particular moves to try to um, soften the blow, or where where do you go in with this kind of issue? Um, so this has always been a contentious issue for me uh, because I always get yelled at every time I give my solution to this. Uh, <laughs> I promise uh, I won't yell at you. So essentially, my solution is this, and it's very contentious. So bear with me here. Just blame everyone for everything, all the time, constantly. If you suck, <laughs> tell people they suck. But, but the mm-hmm. expression of that blame is uh, where we should evaluate people. Like everyone sucks, and everyone should know that everyone sucks. That's just a truism. But you don't have to tell everyone that all the time. <laughs> okay. Uh, and not only do you, uh, do you have to not tell everyone every time, like uh, it's the point at which you say that is when you can help them improve and how you can help them improve. So blame could be compassionate. It could be angry. It could be detached, uh, like Scanlonian kind of uh, uh, relationship modification blame would fit on this kind of model, but also something like uh, Wolf's like Italian style blame. that's just really in your face and angry. That works under the time too. I think uh, the compassionate blame should be kind of the general approach to say, uh, to someone like, say, an abuse victim, mm-hmm. say, you know, you kind of should have known better, but I understand. Uh, like, we've all been there, you know, here, here. You, you were dumb, but we're going to make it better. 
it's a kind of blame. You're saying that this person has some kind of moral fault, that they just are a bad judge of character or something like that. Mm-hmm, uh, mm-hmm. And they should do better in the future. But it's also just extending an olive branch to uh, in some sense that you're like saying, you know, you suck, but we're going to you know, improve in some way. And I'm here to help. Uh, I think I'm, I think I'm sympathetic, right? Like I wouldn't, I don't know if I'd use the word blame. I guess I would say, yeah. you know, our, our moral judgments should be maintained. Like we should still judge what someone did as moral or immoral. Um, but how we address their moral or immoral behavior has to shift dramatically. It seems like as we understand the underlying causes of it and seek to, um, like you were saying, alter that behavior going forward. Um, yeah. So, and that, that that results, I think, in a lot more humility and forgiveness, and um, uh, moving away from punitive models and towards um, restorative and rehabilitative models. Yeah. So, I think the reason I get yelled at is because I'm rhetorically unsophisticated and I use the word blame because I really <laughs> the moral judgments. <laughs> you know, blame is—it's just such a strong word, and like yeah. people, people are going to hear you strongly when you're making moral claims to begin with. So I, <laughs> I've, I've learned to use very soft language, I suppose. Um, but I, I get where I get where you're coming from. I like I because I'm also a moral realist. I don't know if, if you fall into that camp by choice or not. Um, I think that might be the only realism. I <laughs> well, there you go. Right. I mean, I think the the claims about you know you tortured that person and they suffered that was wrong like that to me is amongst the most objective claims i think that i can ever hear um yeah. how we work that out is a complicated question but like that to me seems foundationally true and would be true even if you know they hadn't known that they were doing anything wrong at that particular moment in time um, yeah this is actually one thing i think aristotle gets really right uh mm-hmm. that not only is he a moral realist moral realism is the most obvious realism for him uh, mm-hmm. In the metaphysics, for example, I think in, in uh, Book Epsilon, he con- uh, considers uh, like what uh, a realism could be versus a not-so-realism or a almost anti-realism. And the examples he uses are really instructive that, well, obviously, this thing has to be real, like mm-hmm. the good. Mm-hmm. Uh, <laughs> uh, so, like, uh, the good is, like, the... Uh, obvious uh, example for him as, as a case of realism. And I, I think that's a, a decent approach and certainly uh, uh, rhetorically it should be a good approach, but also just the object of philosophy uh, in terms of like philosophy being a social phenomenon, that should be our assumption mm-hmm. going in. If we, as philosophers are not trying to figure out what the good is and do the good, hmm. why are we doing philosophy? Yeah, I certainly agree with that though. I think that's maybe a little bit more contentious, but I think, you know, I I, where I think I was agreeing with you, I was nodding along there, is that, like, I've been rereading um, Schaefer Landau's Moral Realism, A Defense, um, and and he, you know, takes the position of a kind of um, non-naturalist a priori kind of moral realism, so moral truths are... Um, you know, logical truths in a sense. They are not empirical, observable kinds of truths. And so it makes sense that they would be, you know, harder to doubt than, you know, empirical claims about the world. Like if you think about your Cartesian levels of doubt, like I could sooner doubt that the, you know, that reality around me exists than I could doubt that if it does exist, torturing that small animal over there would be right instead of wrong. Like, that's a that's an even less plausible claim to me, I think. 
Yeah, that's that's right. Um, I of course would not follow Schaefer Landau in pretty much any other way. But oh, okay, uh, <laughs> I, you know, why, why don't you like Schaefer Landau? That's one of my favorite books. I'm curious. Um, if if, so if you feel well versed enough to say so at the moment, I didn't yeah, ask you about so, that at the time. <laughs> uh, I don't want to reduce uh, ethical truths to some kind of like mystical a priori kind of thing. Uh, like I like Plato, but like that's a little too far for me. Uh huh. Uh, and like reducing it to a natural fact opens it up to skepticism to some extent, but reducing it to this kind of uh, a priori judgment or whatever, however he frames it, I forget exactly what, uh, his definition. Mm-hmm. Yeah, like yeah, that's just really open to uh, an attack like uh, Mackey's or the uh, like a few weeks or months yeah. ago when we had Stingray on. He would just pounce on that. <laughs> well, he'd try. Um, well, no. <laughs> he'd jump out of the water and pass on that. That's like, right. He would. He would do the little sailing thing where they hi- dive out of the water. Um, he I, would I, and he would succeed. <laughs> and, and here's what I'll say about the like the natural, non-natural thing. I I feel like moral truths are connected to both natural and non-natural things. Um, yeah. You know, insofar as like your conscious mind and the phenomenal states within it are, when we'll get to that in a second, are part of the natural world. I think that they are related to ethical facts. So I think it's a weird mix of that. Na- and like, this is why I start to doubt the the usefulness of the distinction between naturalism and non-naturalism in uh, ethical discourse sometimes. Um, but yeah, okay. So let me let's switch gears a little bit here um, before we run out of time because you also... You, the paper that I mentioned earlier, the the article I mentioned earlier that you wrote, well, was in defense of Thomas Nagel, um, which I appreciated, even though it was kind of a, a, a bit of a backhanded defense, if we're being honest here. Uh, it's a funny read. We'll link it in the show notes. Um, I'm curious what your take is on Nagel as a philosopher, um, caveating that, you know, I tend to like him, um, but I'm also interested in the criticisms so that I can be more objective and... Uh, yeah, and then we can maybe talk about the hard problem of consciousness a bit. So what do you think about Nagel, though? Uh, well, I, as I said in that uh, blog post, I think Nagel's a bad philosopher. But, um, <laughs> do you really mean that? And you know, weren't just saying it as a joke for the, the rhetorical stylings of that particular blog post? <laughs> uh, so I think everyone's a bad philosopher in this particular okay. sense. That like sure. nobody is achieving the kind of thing that we ought to be achieving. And like in a trivial sense... Nagel's a bad philosopher. Uh, in a slightly more than trivial sense, I also think Nagel's a bad philosopher. In terms of like his methodology is just flatly just not even close to uh, approaching it in the right way. Which is not to say that Nagel isn't sometimes right, isn't absolutely brilliant, isn't a great writer, and all of these sorts of things. He's at, like mm-hmm. he's brilliant. He's a great writer. He's sometimes right, like probably more right than most other people. Uh-huh. Uh, but uh, in but, terms of his, his approach and the the prospects of uh, actually making a consistent solution, I think he's completely off the mark. So when he's right, he's right more or less by accident. Is that because you think uh, of his use of intuitions? It, yeah, in general. Uh, I think the uh, his intuitionism is quite bad, but uh, um, more than just bad, it's just confused, I think. Do you think that we can do ethics without intuitions, or do you have like a way to to fix his version of intuitionism so that we can use it for ethics more effectively? Uh, I think intuitions can be useful, but not as evidence. So uh, mm-hmm. there's kind of a 
um, tradition following Kant through more and so on and so forth about using intuitions as evidence for, uh, say, geometric claims in, in Kant, for example, or, or, or uh, arithmetic claims, and it's through more to like substantive, like philosophical, met- um, uh, metaphysical claims. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, so there's there's this tradition that goes on uh, following more that takes intuitions to be some kind of like primary uh, prima facie uh, uh, mm-hmm. evidence. Mm-hmm. Uh, and there's just no way to cast that out. Uh, there's a lot of literature these days, especially uh, about trying to defend this, uh, this picture of intuitionism as evidence. And there's a lot of literature that's against this. Uh, and as far as I'm concerned at this point, everyone is confused because they're all talking about a different thing. Uh, so there's a theory of rational uh-huh. intuitions that no one defends uh in any positive light in terms of identifying what it is, it's always a negative ideological thesis that it's just a kind of presentation to the mind. That's not perception. That's not imagination. That's not, uh, so on and so forth. Uh, it's just this nebulous understanding of some particular sort. Uh, and then it doesn't connect to the understanding literature for some reason. Uh, (laughs) and when you do the connection to the understanding literature, you have like, uh, propositional understanding or understanding that something is the case and that is incoherent for what intuitionists are trying to use it for uh, there's practical understanding that uh, like understanding how to use something well intuitions aren't being used in that way either uh, there's objectual understanding understanding of, of the properties of an object uh, which is very close but not quite <laughs> uh, and when you import objectual understanding into the intuitionist framework, you have significant limitations on what it is. You, you stop with Kant, basically. Kant and the neo-Kantians, their approach to the use of intuitions might be the correct approach to what intuitions are, but you can't do metaphysics with it. Uh-huh. Uh, and like there's, there's just uh, confusion and incoherence in, in the methodology. Um, but there is still some use there, like in terms of making a hypothesis about metaphysics or something like that. Your intuitions are often a good starting point. And so you, you put the intuition in there, says, okay, well, maybe we should approach the, the question in this particular way, work out some of the bugs, mm-hmm. uh, and then figure out if it actually works in the long run. Well, most of the time it's not, but welcome to philosophy. Most of the time things don't work. <laughs> Get a new intuition, work out the bugs, try it again, and so on and so forth. Uh, Do you feel like an ethical theory, though, has to be um, responsible to at least some of our ethical intuitions? I mean, maybe it... absolutely not. Okay, <laughs> absolutely not. Really, absolutely not. Uh, humans are beings in the world. Uh, we have um, particular demands because of the kinds of creatures we are, uh, the kind of evolutionary history we are, the kind of uh, rational conscious capacity that we have, the kind of relationships we have to other beings, and so on and so forth. If we're on a desert island, there's still things that are right or wrong. If we're not on a desert island and we're embedded in a, a culture, there's still things that are right and wrong, uh, and so on and so forth, irrespective of what our intuitions are going to be. It's like our intuitions are going to be in some way constructed by those relationships. Uh, and like we're going to have different intuitions for the most part if we're, uh, say, in China or in Russia or in uh, Nigeria or in Canada like I am like people are going to have slightly different intuitions and it's going to be colored to some degree by their, uh, mm-hmm. uh, their cultural makeup. And it's going to relate in some way to how they behave um, and the kind of people they're going to be, but that's not evidence. That's just uh, 
it's not evidence for ethical truth in any way. It's just evidence for their own uh, qualities of living in that that context. Okay, so let me rephrase. Um, do you feel like if there are some of our ethical intuitions that happen to cohere or, or happen to correspond to some actual good ethical arguments or ethical truths, however you would cash out your particular views about moral realism, like, you, you still feel like we have to be responsible to those, though, it would seem like, right? You're just saying that it's like the fact that we intuit it is in no way evidence. There has to be those additional arguments or something provided. Uh, yeah, you definitely need more more arguments and more evidence uh, than just your intuitions. I don't think the intuitions in bear in any way as evidence uh, on ethical truths. Um, I think it if they bear in on anything, it's going to be whether a person in that community fits with the uh, um, uh, obligations placed on them by the community. But in some sense, that's also going to be a negative because communities are never perfect. Uh, and oftentimes we need some kind of uh, revision or sometimes even revolution that happens, like not political revolution necessarily, but like significant change to ethical discourse. Uh, that happens to improve the community and improve individuals within the community. And your intuitions are going to generally be against those kinds of things. Because they're going to be shaped by the status quo. Is that what you're saying? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I guess I can understand what you're saying. Like, yeah, I I get what you're getting at. And while I'm, um, I don't know, I, I'm sympathetic to, um, discussion of intuitions. I think I also agree that it always needs to involve, like they're not in, they're not in and of themselves any evidence of anything. They are at best sort of like the begin the beginning of a trail that you then have to follow. Um, yeah, and so that, yeah. in defense of the intuitionists, it is really difficult to see what to do without them. Like, mm-hmm. how do you figure out what's ethically true if you just have no kind of uh, conceptual um, reflection? Uh, mm-hmm. I suppose. And yeah, I don't know how to solve that question, but. Plato has at least an approach, and it's certainly not intuitionist. (laughs) I I often get to points in philosophy conversations where it's like, yep, that's a problem. I don't know how to solve it. This person has an approach. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Say what you will about it. It's it's an approach. Uh, Yeah. Um, So what do you think about how this sort of same issues and your views about Nagel apply within one of the other topics that we cover a lot on this show, which is the hard problem of consciousness? Um, You know, we've had lots of debates back and forth on here with illusionists and and, um, deflationists of various sorts. Where do you come down on the nature of consciousness? Uh, I'm a fairly hardcore illusionist, um, but quite distinct from someone like Frank Fisher Dannett. I'm also very sympathetic to anactivism. Uh, or embodied cognition. Mm-hmm. But uh, in general, I think the illusionist project is right. The hard problem just isn't a problem. Uh, it's not the hard problem, it's the illusion problem, or however you want to cash it out. Uh, in Dennett's word, we're talking not about mental paint or qualia or anything, maybe virtual paint, whatever that means. Um, and the whatever that means, I think, is a really big problem for me in terms of not going like full keith frankish on on the problem uh mm-hmm. and in that sense i think i'm going to more or side more with the uh, and activists in terms of just framing things as uh uh kinds of uh relations and kinds of judgments and things of that sort instead of quasi-phenomenal properties 
because I just don't know what that means. Uh, and it's setting up a big roadblock in terms of even solving the illusion problem in talking about these kinds of weird objects. Uh, and I know they don't want to frame them as objects, but the words they use frame them as objects. Uh, and phenomenal phenomenal properties, is that what you're talking about? Uh, so phenomenal or... properties are what consciousness people like. Illusionists like quasi-phenomenal properties. Uh-huh. <laughs> what quasi means. Uh, and it's, I think, very confused, and it's certainly very confusing. Uh-huh. I tried to teach this. I, I, I'm in a, a seminar on consciousness at the uh, at University of Ottawa right now, and uh, I was trying to teach them to teach the class of mostly neuroscientists what illusionism was like, and not a single person, including myself, understood what quasi-phenomenal properties were. And we spent about an hour on it. Yeah, uh, I mean, that's that seems like the problem to me is that, you know— I'm sympathetic right up until the point where we say we're going to cash out the subjective into something else, and it never seems clear how yeah. it gets fully cashed out. Like, yeah, it would be great if it could, but I've just, I've never seen it done. I've never seen the trick pulled off. Yeah, and I think the, the mistake is to try and essentially um, build a bridge between illusionism and, and uh, more or less a more robust consciousness realism in talking about the same kinds of things. You're doing phenomenal properties. You're just saying they're not actually subjective in some way. But there's still an object there, and from first-person experience, there's still a thing. You can say it's an illusion, but there's still a thing that you're seeing, the redness of the of the book or the apple or whatever. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's the thing you're trying to explain. The activists I find, have this better, or slightly better approach in not talking about things at all. They're talking about judgments or relations uh, so the fact that I see this apple is red is I'm making a judgment about it by bundling a bunch of properties together, um, given the mm-hmm. limitations of my visual system or, uh, the evolutionary history of that apple, uh, mm-hmm. as a selected, uh, or artificially bred, uh, object. And so like we breed apples to be red. And so it gives the apples a certain kind of feature that relates to the limitations of our, our visual system. And we have this judgment that's based on this little packet of information. And that judgment goes off to send a report essentially through our mouths. This apple is red, but there's nothing beyond that. It's just a judgment. Well, so, uh, yeah. So I guess I I want to, I'm curious about your perspective when you say it's just a judgment and it occurs and then it goes out the mouth, like does it at any point, take on a, a what Nagel would call, right, um, what it's likeness uh, of any sort? Because I feel, I mean, I, I, I'm genuinely caught up in the, maybe it's an illusion, but it seems to me that it can't fully be an illusion because it, the phenomenal experience is happening, whether or not it's exactly the way I think it's happening or it's, you know, it's constructed in some sorts of complicated ways or some parts of it are, are sort of painted on after the fact or something like that. Like, I'm still... I'm still having something going on that it seems like is still not going to be able to be describable entirely in purely objective terms. Yeah. Um, so let's give a, I don't like thought experiments. Let's give a thought experiment anyway. Uh, to, tr- <laughs> to test our <laughs> to <try> intuitions. <laughs> yeah, because they're intuitions. Uh, to try and see what, what this kind of thing would mean. Uh, like it's not evidence. It's just to figure out what the terms even mean. Uh, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. which is, I think, what the use of intuitions is. But nonetheless, um, so Chalmers has this, like he has the, the knowledge argument and the, and the zombie argument or the conceivability argument uh, in his 96 book. But in a later chapter, he considers what happens when you have this kind of qualia shift. Uh, so mm-hmm. at that 
point in the book, he's already united consciousness with this fun, uh, functional approach to the mind and so on and so forth, which I think is the mistake in considering this quality shift thing. But he essentially mm-hmm. has uh, this example where you have these neurons that, that sometimes flip back and forth. So subjectively, it looks like the, the object you're looking at, let's say the apple again, uh, mm-hmm. is switching from red to green, 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 uh, mm-hmm. so on and so forth. And subjectively, you recognize this. But because Chalmers has already united consciousness with this functional approach, which is now no longer what he believes, what happens if the subjective what it's likeness is constantly switching? And mm-hmm. it's no longer united with this functional approach. Your neurons are going to be the same. If zombies are conceivable, if inverted qualia are conceivable, presumably so are these qualia shift kind of phenomena. So mm-hmm. why shouldn't your subjective experience constantly be switching? And would that affect your, your reports or your knowledge of any particular sort of, uh, of actual experience? It wouldn't because you're functionally the same. You're still picking out this relation uh, between your visual system and the object uh, in some way. And it, like it, you conceive it as a property of the object, obviously, but, uh, and mm. you receive that information, you make a judgment and you report it. This uh, apple is red independently of the subjective experience, whatever that happens to be. Why don't I, why don't I report I'm watching the apple switch back between red and green and red and green? Because functionally you only have access to the, the uh, features of that object coming into your eyes and the way that your your eyes have processed it, uh, which is strictly a functional thing. So that's access consciousness. That's not phenomenal consciousness. Okay. But I mean, if I'm having the phenomenal experience of it switching back between red and green and red and green, wouldn't, yeah. I could then in theory report that I'm experiencing it switching back between red and green and red and green, right? And that's essentially the, the point here is that you're not actually having that phenomenal experience. Like it's in some way, if the uh, panpsychists and so on and so forth are right, it's some way attached to you, uh, but it in no way bears on the reports you make. Yeah, I just don't. I mean, I want I want to understand, but it seems. I mean, like again, I'm maybe I'm hopelessly naive on this subject, but it does seem to me that the reports are impacted by the phenomenal experiences that I'm having. They can be tricked in various kinds of ways. You can mess yeah. with them, but like... Yeah, have illusions and so on and so forth, yeah. There does appear to be a causal relationship between the phenomenal states that I'm experiencing and how I react to them, how I report them. Um, you know, I'm, I'm hearing you talking right now, and if you said different words in theory... I would react differently to those words. And it's hard for me to make sense of that interaction in my universe. I mean, like I can understand that you could build a natural language machine maybe that could um, process what you are saying and respond coherently without ever having an inner world of experience. But as far as I can tell, my system runs via that inner world of experience. And I I just can't see how to um, reduce that out of the system in some way. Yeah, so like I wouldn't be a, a necessarily I wouldn't necessarily be a reductionist about that kind of thing. Like access mm-hmm. consciousness is still a thing. Mm-hmm. You could have a physical system that still has a perspective, and it still mm-hmm. ha- makes sensations and all these sorts of things. The thing we're questioning is just this kind of non-material or uh, uh, non-microphysical uh, phenomenal consciousness. Just just the what it's likeness and. I realize Nagel can be reframed to the what is likeness is just the access consciousness part, uh, mm-hmm. but that can be fully explained in functional terms. 
Uh, and people have been doing that for a long time. The, the problems are always in this conceptual distance uh, between the phenomenal character of the what it's likeness. And illusionists are just going to say that's not a thing and can fully explain your reports, can fully explain your experiences, your illusions, all these sorts of things without appeal to that. And panpsychists typically agree. Who disagree are these kind of conservative realists who think that you can uh, combine the two in some way. And in over the past 20, 30 years or so, there's significant problems in the methodology of doing that. So if you're mm-hmm. doing neuroscience, for example, uh, every report you make is going to have to do with this functional approach. And so that those reports are not evidence of phenomenal consciousness. Likewise, for your own self, uh, the reports you make, the beliefs you have, uh, the judgments you have, all of these sorts of things are going to have to do with the functional part and not the phenomenal part. So if you want to make that distinction, uh, you've got no evidence of the phenomenal part. You don't have to make that distinction, however. You can just say the phenomenal part is functional. Uh, mm-hmm. But then you've lost a lot of the evidence that you use to actually uh, appeal to the functional part in the first place. Yeah, I guess I'm I'm still stuck on that that really letting it be that the seeing that phenomenal consciousness is purely understandable on the functional level. But I don't think we're necessarily going to get it fully yeah, resolved here. And I, I get I get I think you've done a great job um, sort of conveying that position, refreshing that position. So. Uh, before we run out of time, though, I want to now flip the script on you here. Well, not flip the script. I've been already hammering you on all the questions of realism, but I would <laughs> need to do our our realism anti realism lightning round. Um, nice. Yes, and you've listened to the show before, so you know how this game works. Yes. Um, for folks who've not listened before, right? You're going to ask you a list of things. You're going to tell me if it's real or not real. You don't have to define what it is so that you can avoid cancellation later. Um, are you ready? I am. Is your readiness real? Uh, no. (laughs) (laughs) All right, good. Off to a roaring start. Um, the external world. Uh, no, not real. Okay, not real. Colors. Not real. Phenomenal consciousness. Not real. (laughs) Okay. Gotta gotta get you on the record. I know we already did it, but still, you know. Uh, qualia. Also not real. Definitely not real. Okay. It's usually the way that goes. Uh, free will. Not real. Determine yourself away. Okay. Uh, selves. Not real. Okay. Personal identity. Not real. Genders. Uh, it follows from the others. Not real. <laughs> Races. <laughs> Not real. <laughs> Species. Not real. Okay. Some people get off the boat on one of those. Other people just like. It's it's all it falls or rises together. Um, morality, real. Rights, not real. Oh, okay. A priori knowledge, uh, real. A posteriori knowledge, uh, not real. Propositional attitudes, not real. Ideas. Uh, that one's hard to define, but not real. <laughs> <laughs> Modalities. Uh, real. Gods. Not real. Society. Society? Like, what did you say? Yeah, society. Society? Uh, not real. Numbers? Not real. Abstract entities? Not real. Fictional characters? 
definitely not real. They're fictional. <laughs> <laughs> hey, some people might want to go there, right? Uh, yeah, holes? Holes? Not real. Okay. Chairs? Not real, despite sitting on one. Uh-huh. Sandwiches? Not real. Science? Oh, sorry? It's just pizza all the way down. Just pizza all the way down? Okay. Science? Uh, it's re- uh, not real. <laughs> Natural <laughs> laws? Uh, not real. Okay. And beauty? Uh, that one's really contentious. I'm going to say not real, but it's not, I'm kind of on the border. Okay. <laughs> we'll let you off the hook with a little bit of... A little bit of mixing up there at the end. Um, well, thank you so much for joining us. Do you want to let folks know where they can find you? Uh, well, I could be found in Ottawa. If you want to assassinate me, you're welcome to. Um, <laughs> Maybe uh, let's stick to social media. Uh, yeah, I mostly stick to social media anyway. I, uh, but on Twitter, uh, my handle is Old Aristocles. Uh, my name is my name, uh, Fabian Uh I don't think I have any other social media. Uh, oh, and on the blog, uh, buriedincontemplation.com. Great. Well, thank you so much for coming on. This was a lot of fun. No problem. Thank you very much. I'll catch you on the Twitters. Thank you so much to all our listeners and especially our patrons for making all of this possible. Thank you to our 20-tier patrons. Jude Law's Canadian accent and existence makes my pussy throb. Good morning, Camp Quest. Jonathan Steele is a great dad fund, and Jesse Rabinowitz and Brenda Goodman. And thank you, as always, to our $40 top tier, clearly supports us deeply, Dave Maslich. You all are heroes. We really couldn't do this without you. If you'd like to support the show, uh, please leave us a five-star rating and a review on uh, whatever podcast app you use. Please follow us on Twitter at ETVPod and support us financially if you can at patreon.com slash embrace the void. We really couldn't do this without you because remember, you are the void and the void is you. (laughs) 